The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. This is the third and final part of Barbara Walker's story. This episode comes with warnings about its content, its descriptions, and that it can be triggering for some. We now return to Barbara's description of what she endured and how she survived. He is just texting me, calling me, just 40, 50, 60 texts. I mean, just the names he was calling me, the things he was saying. Not once did he ever say, what happened? Just a realistic thing that you would expect your spouse of almost 11 years the first thing should have been, what happened? Why would you take money? The question, it was all, it was already just this accusatory, it's my money, put it back, you're a thief. Finally answered one of his phone calls that afternoon, and he's just screaming at me in the phone, you're a thief, put that money back. And I told him, I said, I'm not a thief. That's half my money and half your money. I have a right to that money just as much as you do. And he hung up on me. Every day he talked to the kids you know, he video chatted with them. He sent me a text probably about a half hour before it was their normal time to talk. And he said, are you going to let me talk to the kids at least? And I said, well, are you calm enough to talk to the kids? You know, are you in a right mind frame? Oh, I just need to let them know what a bitch their mother is. So I said, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, that is not the way you want to go. You do not need to involve, you and I have not discussed anything. You definitely do not need to involve the kids. So then he called and I said, okay, he's had about a half hour. I'm hoping he's really thought about what I said. And he gets on the phone with our daughter, our oldest daughter first. He's there and he's like, hey, what's going on? And I can hear this. You know, I'm in the kitchen with them. They were sitting at the kitchen table. And the man starts crying, boo-hooing. I mean, these kids have never, these kids saw him cry only once in their entire lives. And now he's on the phone crying. So they're going, My daughter's like, what's going on? Why are you crying? Like, she's like starting to kind of panic, you know, that something really bad must have happened. And he says, I don't know what we're going to do. Your mom is just trying to ruin our lives. This whole alligator act. And he did it with each of them because she gets off the phone. She's shaking and crying now. And I pull her to the side. The other ones are talking to him. Now he's doing the same thing with them, but she's having the biggest reaction. And I'm just comforting her. And I said, look, he is angry right now. This is something between him and I. He definitely shouldn't have said anything to you. No decisions have been made about anything right now. I'm trying to be as honest as possible without including them. So I'm, I'm telling her, like, Daddy and I have some things to work out. And, you know, this is just it right now. I'm so sorry. He shouldn't have said that to you. And now she's calm and everybody's off the phone. And I'm just like, good Lord, this is crazy. With the way he was acting, I kind of had like a sneaking suspicion he was just going to drive up. So I said to the kids, I said, you know what? 
do you guys want to just go ahead and go to a hotel for the weekend and just do something fun? I'm kind of playing on the whole, we just had a really bad, stressful moment. We don't have anything really planned this weekend. Do you just want to go to a hotel, stay at the pool, you know, just have a fun weekend? And I'm presenting it to them like that. But in my head, I'm thinking, we will be out of the house in case he comes. They're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I actually booked a hotel, you know, last minute through booking.com. We packed a suitcase for the weekend and loaded up the van and went to the hotel. Get to the hotel and the hotel is like, we're booked solid. I don't understand how you got a reservation. And I'm like, I have a confirmation number and everything. Like, are you kidding? It was March, the beginning of March. And I think there was like the Daytona bike week or something going on. So even all the way up to Jacksonville, hotels were all booked out. I couldn't get another hotel. So I had to go home. While on my way home, he starts doing exactly what I thought. He started messaging me, you know what? I'm going to come up there. We're going to deal with this. And it was just was progressing. And one of the things he used to love to say when we would have an argument and I would kind of stand up to him a little bit was big girl decisions, big girl consequences. I'm going to put on my big girl panties. I better be ready to deal with the consequences. And that was something he said that night. He's like, you want to go ahead and make a big girl decision? You better be ready for the big girl consequences. Uh, I'm coming up there now. And it was stupid things like, I'm going to quit my job. And, you know, I'm going to stay home with the kids while you get off your ass and go get a job. And just, and I kept telling him, I don't feel safe with you coming. I was, everything was through text. I'm thinking five steps ahead. And you've got a record, therefore. I want it in writing. I want everything in writing. He says, just, I'm coming, whatever. And I keep telling him, I don't feel safe. You're not in the right mind frame. This just happened. Let's take some time to think about it. Just take the weekend, come up next weekend, whatever. Just take some time. No, I'm coming now. We're going to resolve this now. So he finally stopped texting me probably, it was after midnight. And I got the kids to sleep. I'm watching him to see he's already left. I know he's already left because I'm watching him through the app. Oh, gee. He's driving up. I'm not sleeping. I still have the car packed, you know, with the clothes from the weekend. Uh. When we all got COVID in January, every weekend, the kids would do something called camping in my room. Because when everybody had COVID, I wanted us all close together. So even though I was sick and they were sick, like I could, it was easier to keep an eye on everybody. So every other weekend when he wasn't in town, they would camp in my room. That weekend, he wasn't supposed to be there, so they were already planning on camping in my room. At just before 6 o'clock in the morning, I saw where he was, and I saw he was about a half hour away. And I went ahead and I woke the kids up, I put him in the car, and we left. And I went like a mile down the road to a shopping center, and I waited till he got to the house. So he... Gets to the house. He immediately starts calling me. Where are you? You need to come back right now. Get the kids, you know, get home now. And I said, no, I asked you not to come. I don't feel safe. At that point, when we got off the phone and he's still calling me and texting me, I called the police. Two officers show up, a male and a female. And I said, look, here's my situation. What, what are my options? And they said, well, look, they said, if we, we can go to the house and ask him to leave, but if he has a right to be there, we can't force him to leave. He hasn't physically done anything to you. So they said, we'll be honest with you. A lot of times police involvement can make things worse. So if we go to the house and ask him to leave and say he does leave and you go back to the house and he shows up later, it's worse for you because you've now involved the police. 
And they said, do you have someplace else you can go? And I said, well, I said, I've already been telling him to let things cool off for the weekend. Maybe I could try to find another hotel somewhere else. But I'm already thinking in my head, like, I've tried the hotel. I was trying to do that. So they called Hubbard House. They had me call Hubbard House to see if I could get in there. Domestic violence agency? Yes, it's a shelter. It's a domestic violence shelter to see if I could just get in for the weekend with the kids. They were full. It's Saturday morning. They were full. So they said, well, do you have another option? And I said, because I'm also realizing how I was thinking then, man, it's crazy the way I was thinking five steps ahead and everything. I didn't want to leave the state with the kids because I figured that that could bite me in the butt later. He's like, I'm trying to kidnap them. I left the state and, you know, it's just becoming uglier. Some kind of an abandonment situation. Yep. So I didn't, I knew I couldn't leave the state. The only other person in the state that I knew I could go to was my best friend and she lives in Tampa. She had already been aware since I started really finding out things in January. I had opened up to her a lot more about things. I'd honestly, over the years, kind of distanced myself from everyone. You know, she was still my best friend. I went to her baby shower. She came to my baby shower. You know, it was that kind of thing. But we had long spaces in between. I called her and we had, you know, since I had made the decision back in January after finding out about his other injunctions that things were going to start moving, I had been talking to her every day, everything. And she says, come on. She goes, you'll be safe here. Just come on. You know, it's her, her husband and her daughter. We go there. My phone is still blowing up. He is losing his mind. He is trying to download Finder apps. I get a text message. Your best friend is trying to find you. Click this link here. Oh, your best friend. Really? Really? Because he's trying to GPS locate me. You know, so I'm turning off my location on my phone. I'm turning, you know, everything. So I get to my best friend's house. She's trying to keep things light because I'm still not, the kids are freaked out. They're like, what is going on? He, that morning after I left and called the police, he called and finally I got to the point. I had just given the kids breakfast. We're in the car getting ready to head to Tampa. And he had called for like the 20th time. And I picked up the phone and I said, enough, enough is enough. And he's starting with the threats. You need to come back now. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I want a divorce. And I hung up the phone. The kids heard me say that because they're right there in the car. So they're confused. They're, you know, what's going on? And I said, look, things are really not safe right now. All I need to tell you right now is I'm doing what I can to keep you guys safe. Mm. And we'll have more of a chance to talk once things calm down. So we get to my best friends. The kids are shaken up. They're not really understanding what's going on. My best friend is freaking out herself like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going to happen? You know, so she's keeping things lighthearted for the kids. They went swimming. They had a good day. About six o'clock, because it was just about 12 hours since he got there. I all of a sudden get like back to back three or four phone calls from a number I don't recognize. Now he's still calling me and texting me all day long, hundreds of messages. I answer the phone and it's a police officer here in Jacksonville because he is now worried that I've kidnapped the kids and I'm putting them in danger. So he has called the police. Uh. So I talked to the police officer on the phone. I explained what's happening. I explained to the officer, look, you know, I'm just asking for the weekend for things to calm down. You know, and he, he won't give it to me. He won't give time to calm down. He's the one that's upset, you know, and the police officer was like, well, look, because it's a well check, because he called me because he's in fear for them. He's like, am I able to come see them? 
And I said, no, I'm sorry, you can't. I'm not in the area. He said, where are you? And I said, if you have to tell him where I am right now, I cannot tell you where I am. If I have to go to a police station and show those police officers where I'm at, these children, so that they can verify they're okay, I will do that. But if you have to tell him where I am, I cannot tell you because he will come here. Yes. And there were things he didn't tell the police officer. He didn't tell the police officer he had removed the gun. He didn't tell the police officer anything, anything except I'm worried about my kids. The officer assured me he wouldn't tell him where he was. The officer actually said, I've stepped away from him for a moment. Because I I think the officer later admitted to me that there were things that didn't add up with his version of things versus mine, and mine sounded more realistic from his perspective. So I told the police officer where I was, and I said, the kids are perfectly safe. He could hear them in the background, watching TV and everything. I said, I'm not, I said, I needed space and I didn't feel safe, and he wasn't respecting that. Wow. He ended up staying in the house that weekend. His father came over several times to be with him. That night, Saturday night, he drove around to different hotels trying to find me. And his father went with him. And I asked him, I said, why would you go with him? Like, you're like saying that this behavior is okay. He's like, Barb, he goes, I told him from the beginning, I didn't think it was okay, but I thought it would be safer for everyone if I went just in case he did find you. Because I didn't tell anybody where I was. I didn't tell his father, no one. And he goes, I just wanted to be there in case he did find you. And I'm asking him the whole time, like, what are you going to do if you do find her? You're in no mind frame. He's like, I'm just going to talk to her. Yeah. You know, everybody knew that wasn't true. Yes. Sunday comes and it's still the bombardment with text messages and name calling and He was accusing me of having the kids, you know, with another man. And that other man was hiding them in a closet somewhere, abusing them. And like, it was just deterioration. He did every tactic in the book to try to manipulate me to answer the phone, tell him where I was or come back. You know, things from suicide threats to, I hope a truck hits me on the way home and just everything, everything. He finally said, and this, this is a big one that stands out. I don't know why you're so afraid to come home now because if I was going to do something to you, I wouldn't do it right now. I could wait 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. Like my jaw just hit the floor when I read that text because it was in writing. And I said, are you serious right now? Because I'm thinking you just threatened me. And he's like, you just threatened me. He's like, no, I didn't. You're misunderstanding it. I'm just saying, and then repeated it. I'm just saying I don't have to do anything to you right now. You have, you don't have a reason to be scared because I could wait. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, no, definitely not coming back. Everybody was trying to persuade him to go back to work, you know, to go back to Miami for work on Monday. And he finally said, if I can talk to the kids, if I can vo- video chat with the kids and I know that they're okay, I'll leave Jacksonville. I'll go back to work on Monday and we'll deal with this in a week or two when I come back. Here's the rational side, you know, in a completely irrational situation. You know, we make arrangements for him to video chat with them in my car because I'm not letting him see my background, nothing like that. I'm thinking of things like that. I don't want him seeing a background because I don't want him putting two and two together. Of course. He video chats with them. He was told, you aren't allowed to include them in what's going on. They don't understand what's going on. No comments about moms ruining your, their lives. Nothing like that. It has to be a, hey, I'm, how are you? I'm checking on you. I love you. That kind of conversation. He immediately got on the phone and started crying again. And it set my oldest daughter back into a panic. 
he talked to them. He got all his stuff together and left the house. His father left the house the same time as him. I could see on my app, he left the house to go back down to Miami. He drove all the way back down to Miami. It was about 930 at night. And I'm like, okay, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I see he's back in Miami. When I get up in the morning, I'll see that he's at work. You know, just kind of check in. I get up in the morning. It's like 630 in the morning. I immediately, first thing I do is I check that app. And it's showing he's here at the house in Jacksonville. Oh, no. So I refresh it like three times. Like, no, it's got to be a glitch. It must be going back to, you know, like yesterday. Three times I refreshed it. After I refresh it the third time, I get a phone call from my father-in-law. My initial plan was to come back Monday morning. Get up early and just come back home. But I was like, you know what? These kids have had a stressful weekend. We're not in a rush. They're not going to school that day. I'll leave in the afternoon. I asked my father-in-law if he could come by and just let the dog out, make sure she had food, that the dog was good first thing in the morning. And I would be back, you know, like one to two o'clock in the afternoon. My phone rings and it's my father-in-law. And he says, Barbara, do not come home. And I said, what? He says, do not come home. He goes, I'm still kind of freaking out right now. He goes, I drove up to the house to go let the dog out and feed her. I open the front door and something's been placed in front of the front door. It fell over and made a loud noise when I opened the door. He goes, once I got inside, I saw it was your flagpole because we have one of the flags we put out front and I kind of keep it in the corner when it's not being used. And he goes, I thought that was something strange. And then all of a sudden, here comes Austin out of the laundry room. Uh. And I asked my father-in-law, I was like, but how did you not know he was in there? Where was his car? He had parked his car so close to the back of the house that you could not see it if you were driving by. Oh, And he snuck into that house. And the only thing that I can think is that he went back down to Miami, he got that gun, and he came back to the house waiting for me. Because I would have gone into the house first by myself without the kids to see what condition he left the house in. Because my father-in-law had already kind of warned me. He had torn it up. Oh. But I wanted to see how bad it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, he had pulled out all types of paperwork. There was paperwork. He was trying to find the bank that I had put the money. He was trying to find information. He had thrown a Perrier bottle into a wall and it made a hole. It was just a mess. Now, he had picked up most of it, but I didn't know that. So I would have gone into the house thinking, let me see what we're walking into. And not had the kids come in yet. And he would have got me. Uh. He would have gotten me then. So because I had, at that point, I knew I needed to involve the law. I knew I needed some kind of protection. So I talked to my best friend and I said, look, I'm going to have to stay another day or two. I can't go home yet. You know, I have to drive back to Jacksonville and get a restraining order. See what I've got to do. I tried calling over in Tampa you know, hey, this is my situation. What can I do? Can I file for one here? They said, no, you have to file it in the county where it's occurring. So Tuesday morning, I got up. I drove from Tampa to Jacksonville. I got to the courthouse as soon as it opened. I'm watching him. He's still at the house. He's texting me again. At this point, he knows that I know he was there. So, you know, I'm like, why were you there? You just left to go back to Miami. I want to see my kids. I didn't actually leave. I never left. I want to see, he's lying about, you know, but at this point, no one, not even his father knew that I had the app where I could see where he was. 
And I wanted it that way because I didn't want it to accidentally get back to him. I go, I file for the emergency restraining order. I go back to Tampa and they needed 24 hours before they could let me know whether it was granted or not. I drive back to Tampa, spend the rest of the day at my best friend's. He's still calling and texting, still trying every tactic under the, at this point, I'm not responding to anything. You know, I'm not, no, you can't talk to the kids. No, you can't, you know, nothing, nothing. The next day I find out it was granted. He went ahead and left to go back to Miami. Don't they have to serve it too? Oh, this is where it gets interesting. So they do have to serve it. So he left and actually went back to Miami. I see he's in Miami. Wednesday morning, he goes to work. I see he's at locations where he should be working with the elevator union. I go back to the courthouse. I get my copies because I have to have a copy on me that if I ever call the police, I have a copy to give them. And I got an extra copy in case he was here that I had to give the police so they could serve him if he was already here. What they told me was, is they would have to fax a copy to Miami and Miami would have to serve him. Okay. So our court date was set for March 23rd of 2022. He was served March 21st of 2022 because it was just so much back and forth with Miami. Miami would either miss him and then they don't go look out. They don't go look for the people. They knock on your door. If you're home and you answer, here you've been served. If you choose not to answer, they just leave a little sticky note that says, hey, we were here. They don't tell you what it's about, but we were here. They won't go to your job. They won't anything. If you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, they might say, oh, wait, you have an injunction that needs to be served to you. They have to have some reason. So he wasn't served until two days before the court date. We went to court and he... It's so nerve-wracking because I, I never filed a restraining order before. I never had to involve the police. I'm walking on eggshells with them because I don't want to accidentally mess up and say and do the wrong thing and it's denied. So I included it for myself and for the kids. I included all of us in it. When we went to court that day, I really felt like the judge just took our cases. Here's another married couple having a squabble and they'll figure it out. Like this won't last. A lot of them do that. They look at it like, you know, if you two just would sit down and have a nice peaceful conversation, kind of work out your differences, everything would be just fine. That's exactly how it was treated. Yes. He even, he even said, I have no place to take the kids. I need to use the house on the weekends. And I just kind of looked over at him, you know, and, and, The judge was like, okay, I agree with that. You can use the house for your visitation time. But you guys have to figure, you guys have to use the app, the Our Family Wizard app, for all of your communication regarding the kids to figure out a schedule. That's all on you to do all of that. But you can use the house for at least part of your visitation time with the kids. And all I'm thinking is, is I know I should argue with this and say, he's his whole family's here in Jacksonville. Are you kidding me? He has many places he could take them. What, what is this? But I was also afraid that if I spoke up, that it would irritate the judge and the judge would just toss his hands up and be like, all right, fine. You know what? Forget it. You guys can figure it out on your own. I didn't want to make it about a marriage squabble. Plus you would look like the difficult one. Right. You know, and I, I didn't, I didn't want that. 
he had to do the three-hour parenting class, and he also had to attend batterer's intervention as part of the program. Now, he could have his visitations with the kids, whatever arrangement we worked out, after he did the parenting class. So you can do the parenting class online. Oh, brother. It just has to be a court-approved program. Oh, no. It's the same parenting class. So in Florida, they require divorced. When you're going through a divorce, the parents have to go through a parenting class. Not necessarily together, but it's a required three-hour course that everybody has to do. So they have online options for you to do it online. He did it the next day. He actually did it twice because the first time he did it, he did the wrong course and it wasn't accepted by the courts. Uh. Just to show what a, he just wanted his kids. He was allowed the visitation and through the Our Family Wizard app, we worked out every other weekend, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. He wanted to have the kids the whole time at the house, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. He wanted free use of the house. In fact, initially, he expected to be able to stay the whole weekend at the house to come here Friday and not leave until Sunday. And I told him, I said, that's not realistic. That's not feasible. That's my house with the kids. We're living there. You've mm. been granted use of the house, but I don't have family here. I don't have any place to go. No, my answer is no. The judge said you could use it for part of your visitation time. The schedule that we ended up with was every other Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. From 10 to 4, he would be out of the house doing things with the kids. From 4 to 10, he would be at the house with the kids. And then after 10 p.m., he would leave. It was a crapshoot. I mean, it was just everything. Everything. That man did not care about that injunction. He, the very first weekend, he's asking me, can he borrow the van? Because he doesn't have car seats for the kids. He's asking me, what are the kids' car seats? And then in between that, he's sending messages through this app that he knows can be monitored by the court, calling me a whore, that I have different men in the house, that I'm running a brothel, that my boyfriend is there. I mean, at one point, I finally answered, and I said, well, which is it? Which is it? Am I a whore running a brothel, or do I have a boyfriend? You know, make up your mind. You know, he did things like he messaged me on a Thursday night, not on his weekend, and said, can I go to dinner with the kids? I didn't see it until the next morning, and I said, no, it's my weekend with the kids. You can't do it. He goes, oh, well, it's already in the calendar. I'll be there at 6. He had added an event to the calendar. And I'm like, just because you added an event to the calendar doesn't mean it happens. This is not your weekend. It's not your time. He pulled up in the driveway. Uh. I recorded him. I pulled out my camera and recorded him. And he's yelling something out of the car at me, which is another violation. He's not supposed to talk to me. So finally, you know, he's seeing that I'm recording him. He leaves. He goes down the street. And then he calls the police and says that I'm denying him his rights to his children. So then the police come here. Uh. And the officer is like, look. I said, look, first of all, we have a restraining order. We have an active injunction. He is not supposed to be even pulling into this driveway. I had the in injunction with me. The officer basically looked at me and said, I'm going to go back and ask him to leave and not come back, but my shift is almost over. I don't want to deal with the paperwork. And I was just in shock. Like I called my father-in-law. I told him, I told him what happened. And he goes, well, did you get the officer's name or badge number? And I said, no. Am I supposed, like, I've never would have thought that this would have happened. Like, I'm just in shock. We had worked out a schedule. He was, he was manipulating the children. He was saying th things to them he shouldn't be. He sat with them at a parking lot, the same parking lot I went and called the police on him in March. He had driven to that parking lot, was sitting with four children in the car for like four hours, oh. claiming he had no money, nothing to do. He told all of them, your mom hates me. 
She has a new boyfriend. She wants to get me put in jail and she stole all my money. And I know this because my kids came home that night. We're going to bed. And of course they want to camp in my room. So I'm like, okay, come on. And then they start, mom, is it true? Did you do this? And that's, they're coming back to me telling me everything. Uh. Constant manipulations and involving them in things they didn't need to be involved in. And the only thing I'm telling them, because I'm still trying to keep the co-parenting mindset of, even though we're not together, even though it's getting ugly for us, we don't need to involve the kids. The only things I'm telling them is, look, daddy's really angry right now. He's confused. He's just really saying things he shouldn't be. I'm just trying to keep you safe. Like just trying to reassure them. So you can tell it's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. In April, two weeks after the injunction was filed, I get served with divorce papers. He has initiated the divorce. I hire an attorney myself to go ahead, divorce attorney to represent me. When he starts doing all of these violations, the first thing I do is I call my attorney and I said, should I just call the police here to file a violation? What should I do? Like, this is what he did. Is it really, you know, it's a violation, but how do I handle it? Because nobody would give me any answers. The courthouse can't give you answers because they can't provide legal advice. The only thing you can do is call the actual police department, have a police officer come out to you. They read your individual injunction, and then they have their individual interpretation on it to determine whether it's a violation or not. So I get Officer John reading my injunction, and he says, oh, yeah, that's a violation. But then I get Officer Smith out here, and Officer Smith is like, well, no, that's not really a violation. There's no consistency in that. So my lawyer said, if there's anything that you feel is a violation, don't call the police out. He said, if you call the police out, they're going to write their little report, and it goes straight to the state attorney's office. If the state attorney denies it, it's gone. It's like it never existed. That paperwork is now gone. He goes, but if you file it through the courthouse, the courthouse has to file it with the state attorney's office, and then a police officer sent out to you to file a report. He goes, there's a paper trail. He said, Uh just to cover yourself. So every time I had a violation, I was having to go down to the courthouse to file them. I had six violations in six weeks. It just... In examples, you know, and and right now off the top of my head, I can't think of every violation, but it was like the driving up into my driveway, demanding that it was his time and yelling out me out the vehicle and, you know, things that, that would be issues that if not corrected by the legal system, the person could continue to think this is okay for this behavior. The biggest one for me, and by the way, every time a violation was filed, the state attorney's office would call me and the assistant would say, look, I'll be honest, I don't know if the state attorney is going to approve this to go before the judge because I don't think it's serious enough. I don't think it's a serious enough violation, Mm. you know, that the state attorney will approve it to go before the judge. So it's like, okay, what's it going to take? Like, this is crazy. One of the stipulations we did have on our injunction was no corporal punishment. He was not allowed to spank the kids. He was not allowed to manhandle them, put his hands on them, nothing. The last violation that I filed, he had actually taken the kids out to a restaurant to eat during his time. And I'm finding out about this later because they all came to me and told me. And apparently, our youngest boy, who at the time was five, was giving him a hard time about what he wanted to order. So he took him to the bathroom and he spanked him. Hard. And yeah, I heard about it later that night. I filed a violation on it. And 
like three violations they had filed that they had not followed up on. That all of a sudden I'm getting officers coming and they're filing these three violations and they want to talk to him and everything. So the state attorney's office calls me and they're like, look, if you pursue this violation with him spanking him, you do understand DCF will become involved and there will be an investigation into your family. So I don't know if that's the route you want to take. And I was like, I haven't done anything wrong. He's the one, you know, there was almost like this overlying threat of if you pursue this route, we're going to find some reason to, I don't know, what, take my kids from me? That was kind of the impression that I got from that statement. And I told her, I said, look, I haven't done anything wrong. This needs to stop. I'm, I'm afraid. Things are escalating way too quickly, and I don't know what's going to happen next. And it was a week later, one week later, that he assaulted me. That weekend, the beginning of that week was typical. It was the messages, you know, the threats. By Wednesday of that week, we're now into the second week in May. So we're looking at May, we'll say, 11th or 12th. He had stopped messaging me. It was all very cordial. There were no threats. There was no, what boyfriend do you have in the house? Who have you got around the kids? None of that. It would calm down. Our oldest daughter had been invited to a birthday party Saturday morning, riding horses on the beach by a friend of hers. I knew that it was his weekend, so before anything was even mentioned to her about it, I told him, and I said, look, this is what she was invited to. It is up to you whether she goes or not, because that is your time. And he said, okay, she can go. So she goes. He comes to pick up the other kids that morning, and our youngest, who was only three at the time, is not wanting to go with him. Like, she flat out was, like, refusing. And he sent me a message. He's out on the porch. I'm kind of watching this through the kitchen window because I'm staying separate from him. The other, the two boys had gone to the car and she is just like having a complete meltdown, refusing to go with him. So he messages me and says, listen, she really doesn't want to go with me. Are you okay keeping her with you today? And I said, absolutely. But you might want to just try again and see if she'll go with you. You know, she needs to understand that your time is your time. So he came up, he talked to her for like two seconds, and he left. So she spent the day with me. So it was just him and the two boys. Our daughter came home from the party about two, three o'clock, had a great time. You know, the day has been good. He is set to come to the house for his time. Now we're on Saturday, May 14th. Um, he is set to come to the house for his time at the house with them at four o'clock. I can see him on the app. He took the boys out. They spent the day together. He went and made a stop up in Fernandina, which is about a half hour away from us. He had been staying there with a cousin of his when he was in town. He had stopped working two weeks before, said he quit his job. You know, just a really like serious concerning decline with behaviors and, and things. You know, I felt like I was just stuck on my phone, just watching him, seeing where he was going to be, seeing was he coming to the house, seeing, you know. So I see him go to Fernandina and I'm like, okay, he'll be here, you know, pretty soon. How our house is set up is you have the main house, you have the front door and front porch. Then at the 
southern side of the house. The driveway runs up the southern side of the house. It's almost like an in-law quarters. It's, it's almost like a private suite. If you close the family room doors and the laundry room door, it's separate from the rest of the house. It has its own bathroom. It has its you know own bedroom, everything like that. Up, I would make sure those doors were closed and I would go out the back door. I'm not invading his space. He's not invading mine. We're keeping our distance. And he comes to the house. I see he's there. I leave. So I go. I had been going about five minutes away to the college campus. That was five minutes away from us. They had a beautiful outdoor area by the parking lot that just had these beautiful Spanish oaks with moss. It was just a very, very peaceful area that I would go when he was at the house with the kids. And I would paint or I would read or, you know, just have that alone time that I never got. But I was always close enough to the house in case anything should happen. So I went there that night and, you know, I'm doing my thing and it's probably like six or seven o'clock. So I've been there for two or three hours and I, and I needed to run a couple errands. So about 15 minutes away from us is an outdoor mall. And I went there and I went to Old Navy and I went to Ross and I needed, you know, some things for the kids. And then I went to dinner. And they are a little busier than usual. I think I'd, I'd only been there once or twice before. I noticed that the time is starting to creep up. It's, you know, it's getting like 930. I'm like, okay, I need my check. I got to go. You know, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to be late. I didn't want to be late. I get my check. I leave. I come back to the house. The routine had been because the dog was part of the injunction. If you actually read a protective order, it does include pets. So he was not allowed to have anything to do with the dog. So the dog was enclosed in that part of the house that he was not supposed to go into, which included the laundry room, guest room, bathroom, and family room, because it was fully enclosed. So what I would do is I would go up to the back door, open the back door, let the dog out, do her thing, kind of check in. I had cameras put up in the house, temporary cameras with old cell phones, so I could kind of see what was going on in the house. and. You know, everything seemed fine. It's about five minutes till 10. I'm now sitting on the back steps outside of the house. The dog's outside with me. And I hear him. It's just before 10 o'clock now. All right, guys, come give me my hug and my kiss. I'll see you next time. Daddy's got to go. And I can hear him under the laundry room door. So I didn't need the camera out. I didn't need to look and see and make sure he was saying bye at that time. What he would normally do is he would have the boys come out to the side of the house to see if my car was there and then run back and said, okay, mom's car is here. And then he would tell them bye. Well, he didn't do this that time. He just was telling them bye. He saw the time. He assumed I was there. I'm hearing him say bye. Then the boys come through the laundry room, which that door had been closed. They open the door because now he's gone and they come out to the back steps where I am. And they're so excited. They had such a great day with him. They're saying they went to Dave and Buster's. They're saying just what a wonderful time they had that day. And they're just so excited and all over themselves. I'm like, okay, guys, come on, let's, let's go ahead and go inside. We'll, we'll talk about this inside because I'm figuring he's left at this point. You know, he said goodbye. I heard the door. The kids have come to me, all clear indications that he's gone. I stand up, I turn around and I kind of have my head down looking at the kids and I run right into him. He is in the laundry room, leaning against the washing machine. And I turn around, you know, I just walk in and I just, boom, hit his chest. And he puts his arm around my waist and says, you knew this was going to happen. 
So I'm freaking out. The boys are like, what's going on here? I've got my hand up like this. I've got my phone, you know, kind of behind my back, you know, just defensive moves. And I'm kind of getting loud. I'm like, you can't be here. You're not supposed to be here. Maybe under the hopes that somebody, one of my neighbors or something would hear me. And he's like, give me your phone. Give me your phone. You know, and at first I'm like, stop, please. You need to go. You can't be here. Don't do this. Captain, give me your phone. Finally, I gave him my phone because I'm like, what am I going to do with my phone? You know, who, I, you know, I'm not going to just magically dial 911 and what, you know, what? Now the boys are starting to panic and they're crying and screaming. He turns me around. He has me in a bear hug, lifts me up and kind of carries me into the kitchen. Our oldest daughter had fallen asleep in the family room. She had kind of been avoiding him for a couple of weeks, just with everything going on and the way that she was just very, very uncomfortable around him. And the kids start seeing this, you know, they see that he's there. They see that he's there with me. They see that I'm panicking. I actually wet myself. I was so scared and wet him. And I'm, you know, he sets me down in the middle of the kitchen. He's like, what the hell? You wet me. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm so scared. I don't know what's going to happen. He tells the kids. If you can picture our house, you walk in our front door and our living room is to our right and our kitchen is to the left, kitchen and dining room. And then past the kitchen and dining room are the French doors to the family room. When you walk in the front door, on the right is the the living room and we have our sofa and we have kind of like a bench behind the sofa to sit on. He tells the kids to go sit on the bench. They're freaking out. What's going on? He grabs me. He pushes me against the kitchen counter probably about six or seven feet away from where they are. You know, it's just this, where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? Who is he? You know, just these, it had to be somebody else. And I'm like, there's nobody else. I told him where I went that day. I told him what I did, giving him details, hoping that that's going to calm him down. Next thing I know, he reaches behind him and he pulls a knife out. It is, it's a big knife. It was probably about eight inches long, kind of like the type you see for like hunting where one end is smooth and the other end is serrated and it's got the black handle. And at this point, the kids just lose it. The kids lose it. I'm just standing there like, oh my gosh, you know, what's happening now? And it's now it's, you're making me do this. This is your fault. You just can't have anything nice. You just don't want things to work. You know, I'm like, what's happening here? And in, in some point in that, I don't know if he went to reach for his phone or what happened, but somehow he kind of dropped the knife and grabbed it with his hand. So now he has a cut on his hand. And he's like, see, look what you made me do. And he's wiping his hand on my face and just, just the accusatory. Every, everything is my fault. Everything is my fault. And I'm trying to just be quiet and I'm trying to just be, what can I do to defuse this? So he goes um, in the middle of the kitchen. We have a kitchen island. So he goes around the kitchen island and he goes next to the sink where we have the paper towels to get paper towels to put on his own hand that he cut. And I glance over at the kids and I see that our son, our eight-year-old son, is standing by the door. The front door is open, but the storm door is closed. And we make eye contact. And I just look at him and I say, run. And that's all it took. He was gone. That there was no hesitation, there was no question. Run, and he ran. So Austin yells for him, Hey, come back, don't leave. He sees that he's already gone. He goes and he shuts the front door, kind of looks out for a second, shuts the front door, then tells her oldest daughter, Hey, go get your brother. 
go get your brother. So she's now out of the house too. So I'm thinking, okay, we've got two out. Two of them are out. As a couple minutes later, my daughter comes back in and she's crying. And I'm so sorry, daddy. I couldn't find him, you know? And then she immediately goes to the bench and puts her arms around the younger two. And I'm thinking, okay, now I know why she came back. Well, while she was gone, he started turning off all the lights inside the house. Oh. And it, it's hard because you, you're seeing these things happen, but you're not really like thinking. There's not any clear thoughts through your head. It's just like, oh God, you know, what's, what's, what's going to happen? You know, so he's turning off all the lights. And a couple minutes go by, honestly, just a couple, like three or four minutes. And we get a knock on the door. And he goes to the door and he opens the door and he looks out and it's, hey, neighbor, I just wanted to come by and check on you and make sure everything's okay. And it's the lady from next door. She's checking. She's like, hey, you know, are you okay? Is everything okay? He's like, yeah, no, no, we're good. And he starts to shut the door. And that's when I yell, no, I'm not okay. Help me. Please help me. And I start to run. I ran. And my first thought was his complete opposite of where he's at. My thought is, is to go through the dining room and back out the back door, you know, through the laundry room. Well, somehow in all of this, he had pulled out one of the dining room chairs to block the path. And I hit that chair full on. Oh. This next part is kind of in the blink of an eye. I run. I'm yelling, help me. I need help. He shuts the door. I'm running. I hit the chair. I go to my knees. And he is on top of me. He grabs the top of my head and cuts my throat. Oh. And while he's doing that, while he's running to me to get to me, he's telling the kids to go to my oldest daughter's room, go to the room. So he comes behind me, runs behind me, grabs the top of my head and cuts my throat. I immediately, and I don't know what it was. I mean, you have this image in your head of when people get their throat cut, that now that you're choking on blood and it's, you know, it's, it's, I knew he hadn't done it deep enough. I could feel the blood. I could, I put my hands immediately to my throat, mm. but I didn't taste blood. You know, I don't know why I'm thinking these things when this is happening, but I was, I was like, okay, I don't taste blood. I don't think it was that deep. Let me cover my throat with my hands so that he doesn't see that it's not that bad. You know, and I kind of like rub my throat a little bit just to make more blood all over thinking, okay, he'll come to his senses. I can't believe he did this. Okay. He'll, he'll, think that he's hurt me that bad and he'll stop. So I lay down on the floor on my, I was laying on my right side. So my left side was up between the dining room table and the island in that space. And that's when it started. That's, he would, he started a cycle is what I'll call it because he would come over to me. He would stand over me. He would make more accusations that everything was my fault. I had to be with somebody else. And then he would either stab me or cut me. And then he would stand up, go to the kitchen window around the island, go to the kitchen window by the sink, look out the window, go to the bench at the sofa. So now it's like a circle area. Sit there for a second, look at me, start saying more things, kind of get himself worked up and then come back over to me and stab me and cut me again. And he did this five or six times before he stopped at the kitchen window and took out his phone and called his father. And of course he had it on speakerphone. That's one of the things that looking back, 
He ha- always had to be like the loudest person in the room. He always had to have the loudest sneeze. His phone ringer always had to be set at the highest. He always talked on, you know, his alarm that he would set on his phone always had to, he always had to be the loudest person in the room. So part of that was always this need to have the attention on him, which is why I think he had it on speakerphone. Even with everything going on with me, he wanted to make sure that I knew he was calling and who he was calling. And he called his father. First time he talked to his father, he'd stopped talking to everybody, you know, because they were all quote unquote on my side. Called his father. His father answers. It's now 1030. So this has only been going on for 30 minutes, even though it feels longer. And he says, dad, I need you to come get the kids. I've killed Barbara. Okay. And his dad is like, what? He says, I need you to come get the kids. I've killed Barbara. And he's like, son, what have you done? I'm coming. I'm coming now. Don't do anything else. I'll be right there. They get off the phone and the cycle continues. He goes back to the bench. At this point, I'm aware of everything that's happening, but I don't remember what he's saying to me. Yes. I get the same impression, you know, that there's this impression of anger, impression of accusation. And then again, it's the stabbing and the cutting. And then would go to the window. And at this point where I'm laying, I can see the kitchen window. And in my head, I'm going, okay, it's been this long since the neighbor was here. I know she heard me scream. Where's the cops? I keep looking for those red and blue flashing lights going, man, I've just, I feel like so much time is passing. What's, you know, and this cycle just kept continuing for another three or four times. And after that, he went to the bench and called his father again. Where are you? And I said, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to get there. Please just hold on. And he says, he's like, dad, you knew this was going to happen. And he's like, son, why? He's like, I don't understand. He's like, you knew this was going to happen. And as he's saying that, he comes over to me and he puts the phone on my face. And I'm trying to understand why he's putting the phone on my face. And then he stabs me. And all I remember saying is like, help me, please. I don't want to die into the phone. And I hear his father saying, who was that? Which one of the kids was that? Because remember, his father's thinking I'm dead. Yes. So now he's got, you know, a voice coming through on the phone and you heard the panic in his voice. Which one of the kids is that? And he says, no, that's Barbara. He goes, what do you mean that's Barbara? She's still alive? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, you need to let them in there to help her. Please let them into, let them take care of her, please. And he says, no one is coming into this house. No one is coming in. And ended that phone call. And at this point, he's just sitting down on the bench by the sofa. And my dog, who had disappeared through all of this hiding somewhere, finally reappears. And she goes through the family room, the French doors to the family room, which are right on the other side of the dining room. And she goes to the sliding glass door in the, in the family room and starts barking. So I kind of roll over onto my back to face that direction. That's when I hear the glass break. And all I'm thinking is, oh, thank God somebody's finally here. Somebody's here. So now I'm laying on my back in the kitchen. I hear the officers come in, put your hands in the air. Two officers step over my legs. And I raise my hand, just like, help me, please. I don't want to die. I found out later, I actually scared the officers. They thought I was dead. They looked Uh, at the scene. They looked at everything and thought I was dead. And 
actually scared them when I raised my hand. I bet that did. The officer came over. He's like, I've got you. He's putting gloves on. And he's trying to drag me out of the kitchen and into the family room where the paramedics could get to me. He's calling the other officers because right now there's only the three officers in the house. One of them is going through the house, kicking doors in, making sure there's nobody else here, nothing like that. The kids had already been taken out of the bedroom window. They did that before they broke into the house. They got the kids out of the bedroom window. So one officer has him, one officer has me, one officer is still going through the house. The officer that has me is saying, I need somebody's help. I can't get a grip on her. There's too much blood. And when he says that, I look up at him and he's standing over my head trying to hold my arms. And he wasn't familiar, but at the time I'm like, I know him. He's been here before. So I'm like, I can trust him. So I grab his arms and I just hold on as tight as I can. And he's like, okay, I've got you now. Mm. You know, so I guess me holding his arms gave him enough leverage and he pulled me out into the family room. The last thing that I remember from that incident was actually being in the ambulance and feeling like I just couldn't breathe. Laying on my right side, I could, but they kept wanting me to lay on my back. And I understand why. At the moment, I didn't care. I'm like, I can't breathe laying like this. And they kept trying to put an oxygen mask on me. And I'm like, I can't breathe with this thing. I can't breathe. They're like, no, it has air. Like, we're like fighting in the ambulance for, they're just trying to help me. And then I'm out. That's the last thing I remember until I wake up in the hospital. I'm just hanging on here. I mean, the fact that I'm talking to somebody who's alive is everything. But it's... There's, there's no way to uh, throw a lasso around that whole thing. It's just, it's crazy because everyone, everyone that I have encountered that knew him said, I can't believe he did this. I cannot believe he actually did this. Mm -hmm. And there's even a part of me that really never thought that he would take it that far. Go to that place. I really thought if he caught me, that he would maybe beat me, that he would maybe, you know what I'm saying? Cross that line to get me back in my place. Yes. You know, not what he did. And that I think is part of like the scariest part is because nobody sits there and wants to think that someone they think they know is capable of that. But too often we hear about people that we think we know that are capable of that. And to do it in such a methodical way, to plan it out. And that whole kind of ritualistic way that he did it was bizarre. When it was all said and done, and I came home from the hospital, his car was still here. My uncle came in and stayed with me in the hospital. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I actually had the first night that I was coherent, I had a panic attack on one of the nurses. Mm. A male nurse that I was determined that he had hired like he had this master plan that if it didn't work and I ended up in the hospital, he had somebody there to take me out. And I was intubated, so I couldn't speak, but I could have sworn that poor nurse dropped a pill on the floor and then picked it up and was going to give it to me. You know, and like, uh, I don't even know now, but I had worked, I was, I mean, I got the head doctor in there, everything. I'm signing in people's hands, bad guy, bad nurse. I was just so certain he was part of it. You know, I even apologized to him you know, after it happened a day or two later, once I was in a better mind frame, but that's, that reaction was absolutely crazy to me that I'm thinking, I knew I was thinking five steps ahead and trying to stay ahead of him five steps. How far ahead was he thinking on me? And when I came home, 
my uncle had moved his car to the back and covered it with a tarp. So it wasn't just sitting in my driveway. They asked me, they're like, are you going to be okay coming to the house? And I said, yes, as long as I don't have to come and see the car. My uncle found a pair of binoculars in the main part of the car, just because he got in to move the car, found binoculars and another cell phone, and then looked in the trunk and found what we are calling a murder bag. He had his tools from work, which were normal, but then he had a book bag. And in that book bag were rubber gloves, like a bandana, a mini machete, and a mini sledgehammer. Oh, oh my God. I don't know. And another set of binoculars. He was obviously stalking me. I don't know if that was for me. I don't know if that was his plan was to kill me and take the kids and that was for the kids. I don't know. But it was just one of those like, holy cow, like this guy was really crazy. He was legitimately crazy. Yes. He's off the charts. Considering how poorly and unprotected I felt by the justice system with the injunction and how that was handled. The state attorney's office really handled everything after the attack as strongly as possible. Everything for the trial, everything how I was handled with my advocate, everything was just amazing. The communication, it was a push for life, for him to get life. We ended up, he ended up being sentenced to two life sentences plus five years. Just the knowledge that in our lifetimes, we'll never have to worry about looking over our shoulders. Any of that is just such a sense of peace. And the way that it was handled, I want to say in a way corrected, the mistakes that were made were corrected by the legal system were absolutely amazing. But it also it's kind of lit a fire underneath me for how things aren't being handled correctly. Because if my case had been taken seriously from the beginning, it might not have ever gotten to the point it did. Yes, I can see that. So there's been a lot of repair work done. And I think that they've made an example of his case by giving him the two life sentences to show that domestic violence needs to change and how it's treated. And for that, I am and my children are eternally grateful to have that sense of peace. But I really feel like we need to start initiating change before it has to get to murder. Or attempted murder. Yes, it has to get that horribly bad. And it's, it's just miraculous that you survive that. If he had just been a little more thorough here and there, you'd be gone. I mean, you'd be gone pretty early on. Even the doctors were completely amazed. Completely amazed considering the, I had emergency heart surgery. I had damage to my diaphragm. I had two injuries to my diaphragm, to my liver, to my stomach. They had to open my chest and my abdomen to make repairs because he had cut through my stomach. Mm. You know, he cut along my spine. He cut the back of my neck. So I had all types of CT scans and everything to make sure that he hadn't done any permanent damage. But almost every internal organ had damage from him. People talk about like a bigger picture and miracles and things like that. And I have to say that there's probably a bigger picture that's been forming for a long time that I didn't see. And I think it started with us coming up here. To Jacksonville, because if I hadn't been in Jacksonville, it would have been down there in Miami. Yes. And the outcome would have been completely different. If there's just so many ifs, if I hadn't had the foresight to install the apps, how many times would he have caught me? Just so many things that fell into place that even though it was as devastating as it was what he did, 
the outcomes are where they needed to be. Our children not having to worry about being abused. Everything. Just the freedom. That phone app that you talk about is really amazing. I mean, it's just, had that come any other time, if that had come later on, let's say by two or three months, we wouldn't be having this conversation. No. Because you'd just be flat out gone, you know? Yeah, he would have, he would have gotten me back in March. Barbara, thank you for telling us your story with such clarity and intelligence and for being so articulate. Just amazing how you were able to track through this and and explain it so clearly. And, And I'm certain that those who need to see and understand those transitions you had from the dating days to developing a relationship, everything looked great. You had similar goals with him. And then, unfortunately, we start to see the glimpses of abuse, which you didn't quite catch on to, but those who listen to this podcast probably are getting pretty good at it now to kind of see the red flags, warning signs and all. The glimpses of abuse to emotional and verbal and then finally physical abuse and then, of course, actual violence and horrible violence. I mean, almost murder. I mean, it's just what he attempted to do. He didn't pull off, but he certainly uh, gave it 10 times the effort You're amazing. You're strong and such a heroic mom, such a heroic woman, such a great survivor. And I just want you to know, because this is the first time you've told your story all the way through, that people who are victims need to hear things like this. You know, they need to pick up on parts of your story and say, well, that's not literally what's going on, but it has similarities. And later in your story, I don't want that later part in my life. And I need to reach out and get help from a domestic violence agency or a hotline. And I just want to end by saying, I just want to thank you for honoring us for being on the When Dating Hurts podcast and talking to me today at length. You really, uh, you know, whatever I anticipated this interview would be like, you went way past that, way past that by a hundred miles. And I just think, I mean, it's just such a, it's just a great thing to meet you and to feel like I've gotten to know you over the course of you telling us this story. I I see such a deep person. I see such a caring person. You gave this guy countless opportunities to turn it around and he just, he's not made that way. You know, he's just not. So all I can say at the end is thank you so much. And I just admire you deeply. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate that too. And I really hope that my voice and my story can even impact one person, one person, because one person is all the difference it can make. Thank you so much. Yes. And I can tell you thousands of people nowadays listen to this podcast and it will affect more than one person. I guarantee you. I know that to be true. I've gotten the emails about other people who've told their stories and your story is, it's going to take me a while to calm down from listening to your story. But the one thing that was such a reinforcement is as I interview, I can see you. And it's amazing that this was about a year and a half ago, right? Yeah. I mean, you look like you're raring to go. So God bless you. It's great. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate giving a voice. Yes. And that's the most important thing to me right now is just making sure my story has a voice. And I'm so fortunate to have that voice to tell it. And tell it well. Tell it very clearly. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes Barbara Walker's story. This has been the first time she's told her complete story to anyone. God bless Barbara, her children, and her family.
Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at whendatinghurts.com.